0: Thanks for checking out the Oasis Church podcast from Camden, Arkansas. Each week we share the message from our Sunday worship service. Join us anytime. More information at camdenoasischurch.com. Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team. Aren't you thankful for your worship team this morning? They do such a good job. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we'll begin reading in verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So these past several months um, up in the youth building, we have been going through the book of Matthew with the youth. When, I first, oh, 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 when we first kicked off the youth ministry um, back in September, I didn't really know what to start, uh, uh, like to start teaching on. I didn't know what all these kids knew. I didn't know how much background in church that they had, how much Bible knowledge oh, that they had. Um, I didn't know if, you know if they had all been in church their whole lives or if they had never set foot in a church before. So I kind of just wanted to fill that out, and I didn't know what to start teaching on. But I thought, you know, what better place to start than with Jesus? And so that, that's always a great place to start um, with Jesus. And so we started at the book of Matthew, and we've been walking through it all year. You know, we took a break every now and then to talk about other topics. But it was pretty much Matthew that we always came back to. Um, And I remember at one point in our discussion, we got to the topic of Jesus and the cross and the purpose of Jesus and the cross and why Jesus had to die. And uh, I remember, you know, at that point, I was really fishing. of, of, Of course, I was really fishing for how much knowledge did they have? How much did they know about the cross and about the gospel? I was trying to pull out every little strand of knowledge that they had, and I learned a lot from that. But one of the things that I... I don't know if puzzled is the right word, but something that surprised me a lot is how well they knew this little part of the story, how well they knew this little section. They knew it so well. All of them did. Every one of them. They couldn't tell me anything about atonement or propitiation or reconciliation, and naturally, but they knew this little part of the story so well. They could quote it by heart. Oh, 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 there was two criminals beside Jesus who was crucified there, and Jesus had a conversation with one, and he said that Jesus didn't have, uh, oh, Jesus didn't deserve to be hung on the cross, and he asked Jesus for forgiveness, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, they knew it word for word, by heart, but why? Like, why? Like, that just was so surprising to me. I, I had no idea. It bothered me so much. Oh, Jesus giving up his life, taking on himself the sins of the world, the father sacrificing his only son that we might be reconciled to him. And what they knew so well was that there was a guy who was crucified beside Jesus, and they had a conversation. That's what they remembered about the story. And I thought about that for a really long time. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and then it hit me. I figured it out. And you know what I figured out? I'll tell you right after this next story. So when I was a kid, I loved reading. I loved reading books. I loved going to the library at school, and then eventually, you know, they figured out how to standardize reading, and I didn't like it that much. But before that, um, well, uh, before they started doing all that, and I loved to read, one of my go-tos were these books called the Magic Treehouse Series. Can I get a witness? Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Magic Treehouse Series, Jack and Annie, baby, going on adventures all the time. Um, and, you know, and oh me and my brother, we were crazy about them. I wasn't as crazy as my brother was because there were like 60 of them and he read all of them. But I read a lot of them. Um, but, 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 but I loved these books. And I remember in these books, they had pictures in them. And it's not like, it's not like they were picture books. But every now and then when something serious in the story was going on, a picture or a little sketch would show up on one of the pages so that you knew what the scene looked like or what was going on. And so I remember when I was reading these books, I couldn't wait to get to a page that had a picture on it. Because once I got to the picture, I would just stare at this picture. And I would just think about everything that had happened up until that point from the last picture to this picture in the context of the new picture, right? And so that way, it made it easier to play the story in my head like a movie, kind of. Because that's what we do with novels or stories, just naturally. um, Because that's what we're always doing. And that's exactly... Uh, 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 is what happens with any kind of image Uh, images help us see things and remember things better and understand concepts better that's why babies have picture books that's why art is so beautiful because our minds love to attach an image to a concept I think that's why I like movies so much because a good movie can really make you feel something and that's exactly what's happening with this thief on the cross It wasn't that my youth didn't know or understand the purpose of the cross. It wasn't that they didn't know the purpose of what was actually happening in these scriptures. But somewhere along the way, they had heard the story and they had heard the message of the gospel and they connected this story to it. They had connected the concept to the picture and and together they had remembered that, uh, this image in their heads. What a beautiful story this is. The very first conversion. The very first salvation by way of the cross was gifted to one of the most unlikely candidates. We see this man and Jesus uh, having a conversation. And what's so interesting about this little conversation that they have is it contains every single step for attaining eternal life. The entire message and effect of the gospel is shown here in these three statements by a thief on the cross. So I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning on the famous last words of a criminal. The famous last words of a criminal. I heard one time that at the end of the day, there are only two people on earth, people who like jelly and people who like jam. No, I'm kidding. The only two people on earth at the end of the day are saved sinners and there are lost sinners. And I really agreed with that for a really long time, but I'm not so sure that I'm a huge fan of it anymore because it doesn't carry the idea of forgiveness. And I really think it should. Because what truly happened on the cross that day is, yes, we were saved from the penalty of sin, but that's only because of the forgiveness of every sin. There were two criminals who hung beside Jesus on that Good Friday, and the difference between the two is one rejected that forgiveness, and the other received the forgiveness. One is a forever criminal, and the other Is a former criminal. So, what makes these two men different? What makes one a forever criminal and the other a former criminal? Well, the answer is found in the last words that they both speak. They say the last words a man speaks is some of the most important words he'll ever say. If you remember the movie Citizen Kane, right? The, the, in, uh, the entire movie of Citizen Kane is about this journalist who is trying to figure out the meaning of the final words of this guy named Charles Foster Kane. Uh, it's actually known as one of the greatest movies of all time. I'm um, not so sure if I agree with that, but in this movie, the journalist uh, uh, finds out and he learns a lot about this guy, Charles Foster Kane. Um, But if he could really just figure out the meaning of the last words he ever spoke, maybe he could understand better where Mr. Cain's heart had always truly been his whole life. And so we see these two criminals on the cross beside Jesus, both accused of the same crime, both sentenced to the same death, but both were destined for two very different places, two very different destinies because of their final words. So let's take a look at the difference between a former criminal and a forever criminal. Well, first of all, a former criminal admits he is a sinner. He knows he's he's done wrong. He knows he's deserving of punishment, and he knows he needs a savior. Look again at verse 39. He said, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So this guy was not willing to admit that he was deserving of punishment. He thought that he should have been saved from the cross. But look at what this other guy says, verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And the first difference, the former criminal knows he deserves the cross. You know, I think that's a big problem with the church today and a lot of Christians today. You know, I'm all down for loving people and showing mercy, and living like Jesus. That's all great. But people cannot know that they are sinners. People cannot know that they need a Savior unless they know that they are sinners. They can't. You cannot know the extent of salvation unless you know the extent of sin. I think that's why we haven't seen another great awakening in a really long time, Because we're scared to call people sinners. We're too scared we're going to offend somebody. Oh, 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 somebody said, well, you know, all Christians want to do is just, you know, call me a sinner and all that. And yes, but but, but that's not the only part of the gospel. The gospel is, yes, you need a Savior, but there is one. But there is one. They always leave that part out. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards, maybe you've heard that name before. He was a famous evangelist. Back then, he preached one of the most famous sermons in the history of the church. Uh, they used to actually uh, well, teach this sermon in seminaries. They don't really much anymore. I'm not sure why. But the reason this sermon was so popular is because it started the First Great Awakening, actually. He preached it several times, and it started the First Great Awakening in America. And do you want to know the title of this sermon? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, y'all, if if I got up here this morning and started preaching to y'all, sinners in the hands of an angry God, none of you would come back to this church. Not one of you. Even y'all who have been here for your whole life, you would not come back to this church. You'd say, them people at Oasis have gone completely crazy. Cuckoo in the head. Please allow me to read you a small excerpt from one of the most effective sermons to ever be preached. I got to get my 1700s voice on. Your wickedness makes you as if you were heavy as lead to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell, and if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and all your care and prudence and all your righteousness would have no influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell. then a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment for you are a burden to it, the creation groans with you. The creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give a light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life and your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. Now that's preaching, y'all. Aren't you glad that's not the sermon you're getting here this morning? Because who, who talks like that anymore, right? Like nobody talks like that. And I'm not saying we should go around and rebuke people and call them sinners for that they serve sin and Satan, because that's probably not a good idea. You might uh, catch five fingers to the face. But when we forget the severity of our sin, we begin to make less of the cross. And a former criminal knows his need for a Savior. But look at the next difference between the former criminal and the forever criminal. One knows Jesus is undeserving of such a punishment, and the other doubts his legitimacy. The other one doubts his legitimacy. Look again at verse 41. He said, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now, I'm not sure that this man knew the full extent of what he was saying. He probably just meant, well, Jesus hadn't done anything wrong recently to deserve crucifixion. And though that was correct, what he probably didn't know is that Jesus had done nothing wrong ever. In his entire life, Jesus was perfect and without sin because he had to be. That's the only way he could have been worthy to pay for our sins in the sins of the world is if he went to the cross as a spotless lamb being sacrificed on our Behalf. When this man declared that Jesus had done nothing wrong, he was declaring that Jesus was the Messiah who didn't deserve the punishment that he was giving, but he willingly did it on our behalf. He didn't deserve to be whipped and beaten and mocked. He didn't deserve to carry his own cross down the road while people threw rocks at him and spit on him. He didn't deserve to have nails hammered into his hands. He didn't deserve to have nails hammered into his feet and then hoisted into the air to hang there for hours, not being able to breathe. He didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve to be totally and utterly separated from his father and sent to hell because that's where sin belongs. But he did it anyway. He did it anyway. The thief on the cross knew he needed a savior, but he also knew and had faith that Jesus Was that Savior? The difference between the two criminals on the cross is one realizes that Jesus really was the King he said he was. He really was the Son of God because who else would willingly do such a thing? And finally, in an act of faith, in the moment of his greatest need, feeling the weight of his sin, the former criminal turns to Jesus for his salvation. In verse 42, he said, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he said, Jesus is Lord. Other translations say, remember me when you come with your kingly power. This man knew that Jesus was a king, and he said, I trust you with my eternal life. And Jesus speaks to him the very words, I hope he says, to all of us when our day comes, today you will be with me in paradise. The forever criminal and the former criminal both have Very different final words on earth, and both have very different eternal destinies. But the Bible says that at the end of it all, when Christ has come back to get us, and he establishes his new heaven and his new earth, and he sits on the throne over creation, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the exact same last words. Jesus Christ is Lord. But for some, it will be too late at that point. The forever criminal will forever be a criminal. However, you still have the opportunity to profess those very same words of a former criminal. I have sinned. Jesus undeservingly took my punishment, and I trust him with my eternal life. Well, one of my favorite uh, songs is this hymn called There is a Fountain, and I've asked Margaret to um, lead us in singing it here in just a moment, but first I want to share with you The story behind this song. Uh, In the 1700s, there was a man by the name of William Cooper. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. His father was a chaplain in England, uh, and his mother died when he was only six years old. And since his father was so caught up in his ministry work, he sent him off to boarding school to study law. And over the years, as he grew up, he developed extreme depression and anxiety. And when it came time to take his interview for the bar exam, he had a massive panic attack and couldn't continue. And because of this, Cooper was rejected from practicing law, and he just spiraled into even deeper depression. And while being cared for by a family friend, he was introduced to a man by the name of John Newton. Now, maybe you've heard of John Newton, maybe you haven't, but you're probably familiar with a little hymn that he wrote, uh, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Yeah, that's the same guy. Now, so William Cooper and John Newton became very close friends. Uh, So good of friends that Cooper actually ended up living with Newton uh, for several years so that they could write hymns and poetry together. And uh, Newton actually began to disciple Cooper during this time and teach him about following Jesus and what it really means to follow Jesus. Well, as the years went on, Cooper still struggled with falling in and out of depression and even struggling with clinical uh, insanity, clinical insanity. And in between one of his waves of depression, he wrote the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Later in his life, his insanity became so severe that he attempted suicide on three different occasions. And he said, Every single time the words of that hymn that he wrote still rang in his ears. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. I think we remember this story in Luke so well because we can see ourselves in the thief who hung beside Jesus, the thief who was a sinner, who knew he deserved to be there on that cross, but because of his great love, Jesus all washed all his sins away. But there weren't just two criminals on the cross that day. There were three. There was the forever criminal, the former criminal, and the faithful criminal. Jesus was made that faithful criminal for us in our place. Jesus became a criminal for you and for me, and he was that faithful criminal. And you know what his last words were? It is finished. Death is finished. The power of sin is finished. The work of salvation is finished. But the story doesn't end there because Sunday came. Amen. On Friday, he said, it is finished. But on Sunday, he said, it has begun. Love has begun. Life has begun. Peace has begun. Eternity has begun. Maybe you're here this morning and you can proclaim that you are a former criminal. Would you worship him today? that? Would you be reminded of that sin that he took for you? Would you thank him for that free gift that you did not deserve? Remind yourself of the sin that he took for you. Remind yourself of the pain and sacrifice that he went through for you. But maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself on the wrong side of the cross. I invite you to experience new life today. All you have to do is acknowledge that you are a sinner, that Jesus paid the price for them on the cross, and trust him with your eternal life.